thank you. Uchtran, uh, uh, I'm grateful for the invitation to speak today, and I'm uh, honoured to be part uh, of this event. Can I begin perhaps with the theme of empire, since you've placed this at the heart of your concerns for our discussion? Uh, and since Professor John Horne has highlighted uh, the issue in his eloquent introduction. Let me then move to consider partition, particularly in relation to unionism, since this has a relevance and a challenge in terms of the president's emphasis on ethical commemoration. And let me also attempt to follow John, if I can, in his European and his global approach to the history of Ireland uh, a century ago. As John has said, uh, there is indeed a distinction between the great dynastic empires of the early 20th century, such as those of the Habsburgs, and the contemporary colonial empires of, for example, the French uh, and the British. There are uh, also ways in which these categories overlap, however, and there are even senses in which there is an overlap between the concept of empire uh, and that of union. So, in pursuing the idea of empire and imperialism, let me first take an example which was much invoked uh, in the Home Rule era uh, and which has been uh, mentioned already by others. Austria, Hungary, the dual monarchy was the focus of a great deal of uh, earnest Irish nationalist as well as British liberal reflection, most famously by Arthur Griffith in his Resurrection of Hungary but also John Redmond and other home rulers in Ireland and Britain, including, for example, Gladstone, and the Scottish scholar of Central Europe, Robert Seaton Watson, all saw various forms of parallel or paradigm connecting the nationalities of the UK and those within Austria-Hungary itself. Some sustained this analysis after 1918, seeing applications and links between the UK and the successor states. These efforts to find an ideal in Central Europe were sometimes uh, highly unrealistic, but a careful comparison of the two, the UK and the dual monarchy, remains instructive, I think, as we all reflect upon the history of Ireland's relationships with union and empire uh, a century ago. So Austria-Hungary lacked an overseas colonial empire, but it was associated with periodic efforts at annexation and settlement in southern and eastern Europe, including in 1908 uh, uh, Bosnia. Austria was associated with the military subjugation of its insurgent peoples. And I'd add to the taxonomies already mentioned the notion of internal colonialism, the idea that polities like the dual monarchy or the United Kingdom a century ago were characterized by complex colonial or colonial style relationships with neighboring territories. Such empires were commonly associated with different forms of social as well as territorial division, with in particular the notion of division and rule. And this was applicable both in a dynastic empire like Austria-Hungary, as well as in the multinational union and empire that was the United Kingdom. In Austria-Hungary at the beginning of the 20th century, there were favored nationalities and political classes through which Habsburg rule was sustained. And indeed the very basis of the compromise of 1867, which shaped the dual monarchy, was essentially an agreement between the emperor and the Hungarian political elites to the exclusion of others. 
And there are some similarities with the Irish experience. The Union was effectively founded upon an agreement in 1801 between the British government and the Irish elite, that is to say the Protestant ascendancy interest. Ireland under the Union, certainly at first, was ruled in association with a privileged social and economic class, just as other European multinational states were held together partly through the agency of similarly privileged groups. Associated with divide and rule, however, were other policies of what might be defined as partial reinforcement and which were practiced throughout the history of the Habsburg monarchy as well as of the British and Irish unions. These embraced the simultaneous application of periodic reform as well as, often together with, suppression. And they were captured in the notion of constructive unionism which characterized so much of British policy in Ireland and indeed in Scotland, for that matter, in the 19th and early 20th centuries. Expressing this another way, British government applied both interconnected coercion and conciliation, kicks and hippens, as they were sometimes called in Ireland, where the Habsburgs and their Magyar allies applied what were sometimes labelled as horsewhips and oats within the dual monarchy. Unions and empires survived for a time both because they demonstrated flexibility with the violent suppression uh, of dissent. But since both in the UK and the dual monarchy, the imperial centre held control over power and resource, so-called subsidiary nationalities and groups were effectively encouraged to apply pressure and negotiate there rather than uh, to negotiate and deal with each other. And these were lessons learnt and deployed, I think, both by unionists and nationalists across the years of union. Empires and unions were similarly affected by uh, the First World War, conflict which has been described as being both between as well as being against uh, empires and empire. We still tend to define the war in terms of the victors uh, uh, and the defeated. And there are obvious reasons for this continuing emphasis, given the complete collapse of the dual monarchy in 1918. In fact, the impact of the war on complex multinational polities like the UK bears some comparison with its imperial adversaries. In both Austria-Hungary and the United Kingdom, war brought the further marginalization of so-called subsidiary nationalities such as the Irish. In both Central Europe and the UK, war brought the escalation of existing national tensions as the smaller nations within wider unions saw themselves as being failed by their dominant partners. War brought the hugely increased influence of imperial military establishments, whether in London, Vienna, or elsewhere across Europe, with uh, related restrictions on civil liberties. War brought an end to the kinds of flexibility and ambiguity which had hitherto been essential in sustaining the governance of these complex multinational polities. In short, war magnified a set of tensions which were evident in different multinational unions and empires across Europe before 1914. And in the case of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, it opened up a pathway to failure and disillusion. But even in the UK, one of the victors one of the arbiters of the post-war settlement, the impact of the war was felt in some broadly similar ways and with some similar results. The relegation, the alienation and the insurgency of a subsidiary nationality, the Irish.
Empires were, as John has said, closely embroiled with partition in terms of the delineation of territorial acquisition. Partition has, as we've heard, been closely associated with the processes of decolonization in Ireland, in India, and in Palestine. It's also been closely associated with the fallout from the First World War, with the deconstruction of the great European empires after 1918, and the complex definition of the boundaries of successor states. Let me finish by reflecting a little on these issues, not least, as I've said, because they've got a bearing on the President's theme of uh, ethical commemoration. My particular focus today is on revisiting some of the complexities of the relationship between partition and unionism in this centenary year of the effective establishment of the main institutions of partition. First, I would recall that for unionists in Ireland, partition was originally a means to an end. Throughout the Home Rule era, Irish unionists, including Ulster unionists, rejected Irish nationalism because they said that they feared for their civil and religious liberties and for their economic prosperity in the event of Irish legislative independence. This was their repeated message right across the Home Rule era, and it was enshrined in their central canonical text, the Solemn League and Covenant of September 1912. Unionists, including Ulster Unionists, for the first 28 years or so of their movement between 1885 and 1913, didn't seek the division of Ireland actively because the division of Ireland was also the fundamental division of unionism itself. Carson, the unionist leader, had had direct professional and personal experience of the huge difficulties in negotiating a territorial border uh, uh, between Alaska and Canada when he was Solicitor General. And it's likely that through close family connections, he was also aware of the failed partition of uh, Bengal from 1905 to 1911. Unionists worked with what was originally an outside suggestion of partition as a means by which to wreck home rule. And they moved from nine-county to six-county partition, and from there to what was, again, an outside notion of a six-county home rule scheme. And into this latter, they subsequently entrenched themselves. But the purpose of their political agitation had now largely been replaced by the means. That's to say the effective upholding, as they argued, of their civil and religious and economic rights had been overshadowed by the agency of partition. Means had overtaken ends. Second, and related to this, I'd suggest that in a sense, unionism after partition became that which it had ostensibly opposed. Just as the dissolution of the European multinational empires produced successor states, which were often themselves forms of mini empire or indeed mini union, so with the redesign of the United Kingdom in the early 1920s, Northern Ireland was a form of successor state to a failed union and to an empire in crisis. Northern, uh, Northern, Ireland, Northern Ireland possessed home rule or devolution within a sovereign United Kingdom state. It was not itself sovereign, but it had some of the markers of a state, and it bore some comparison to other interwar continental European polities products of the dissolution of empire and with their own dominant and subordinate nationalities and cultures. The North was closely linked to an evolving dominant Ulster identity, which developed alongside unionism and which was by definition 
exclusively Protestant, and it drew upon an imagined colonial or planter narrative of challenge and survival over 300 years. There was very little space or sanction in the North for those who lay beyond this dominant identity, and the consequences of this for Northern nationalists and their civil rights were very bleak indeed. Putting this another way, Unionism was originally, at least in terms of its expressed ideals, about integration within a supranational union and about protecting rights that they said were under imminent threat. And yet, unionists later often embraced an exclusivist set of identities and at times deeply unjust actions, which they themselves had once fearly, fearfully attributed to their purported enemies they became a version of that which they had claimed to oppose. The third point that I'd suggest is that while partition has for long been associated with uh, the single British measure, the Government of Ireland Act of 1920, it was in fact a process and not a single event. Partition was a dynamic which ultimately produced a radically different form of border to that which was originally and painfully debated by Carson and Redmond in 1912-1916. Partition in Ireland, as then conceived, involved the possible creation of an administrative border between two polities associated with a substantially redesigned United Kingdom. And even the Government of Ireland Act itself envisioned two Home Rule territories in Ireland which could have remained closely interconnected. The partition settlement, which was finally confirmed in the mid-1920s and 1925, was reached by incremental steps, but it ultimately involved an economically and politically much more profound division of the island and of its people than had been foreseen when the notion first gained traction uh, in the years before the First World War. Expressing this another way, the story of partition is in part the story of unintended consequences in Irish history. And let me make a brief fourth, final and very broad point in relation to partition and empire, and in doing so return to Central Europe. One of the major themes within the current history writing on Austria-Hungary is a focus on those who live their lives pursuing their personal, their familial, social and professional priorities relatively distant from the wider political and military concerns of nation and empire. People whose values, whose ideals, whose integrity were expressed within the intimate and the local rather than any uh, wider canvas. These notions have a wider relevance, including for Ireland, uh, as the first MacNav 100 seminar discussed. And it's worth underlining that not everyone 100 years ago was a hero either of the Union or of the nation and of its revolution. And that, as the work of different scholars has pointed out, Irish people often led their lives quietly and in politically undemonstrative ways far removed from the epic struggles of resistance and liberation. The point of commemoration, John has rightly said, is to interrogate the past for the sake of the present. And perhaps it may be about the interrogation of the past for the shaping of our vision of the future. Historians are ever conscious of the burden of presentism, of the dangers of unduly shaping their work according to contemporary preoccupations. 
They are also at best skeptical or unwilling futurologists. As the Scots historian Tom Devine has said, the future is not my period. The complexity of the past and an unquestionable curiosity. The complexity of the past and an unquenchable curiosity are historians stock and trade. But while allowing for all of this, it's important to reflect on past ideals and upon the distance sometimes separating them in subsequent history. It's instructive too to pursue the comparative context within which Ireland and its future were defined and envisioned in the age of home rule and revolution. And it's surely worth reflecting on the contingent and the dynamic nature of our history, and indeed on the extent to which our past commemorations, both North and South, may have sought to privilege particular moments or particular people or particular classes to the exclusion of a much richer whole.